0: Important not to leave any Garys yeah. out. No, no Gary's, Garys left, left behind. behind oh my God. <laughs> hey there. Welcome to Hot Takedown, a sports podcast from 538. If you're just joining us, this is a show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is June 18th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the assistant sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hello, Neil.
1: Hey, Sarah. How are you?
0: <laughs> I'm good. What was that voice?
1: Well, you know, I was trying to shift gears from our farming talk uh, <laughs> before we start rolling.
0: On the line from Los Angeles is 5:38 sports editor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff.
2: Hey, Sarah. Hi, Neil. I never <laughs> Jeff, think you know, and you never hi say
1: hi to me. And, you know, I'm it did wound me uh, as as we've kind of been going about the show. So I really appreciate that from You're you welcome. today, You're Jeff. Welcome. To be Thank fair, you. You,
0: also, you talk first and you have never once said hello, Jeff.
1: Well, you
2: haven't introduced me yet. That would be weird.
1: Yeah, that would be <laughs> very can. awkward. He would be stepping all over you. I mean, I could introduce Jeff next time. Oh, interesting! Maybe that sort That's of, a... we do like this, like you know, rounds.
2: I prefer Sarah introduces me. Thanks, Neil.
0: Jeff, can you verify for me that there were, in fact, no notable horse races
2: over the past weekend? There were none. Quiet. Okay, week. I
0: just wanted to make sure we weren't missing any.
2: There was a big golf tournament.
0: True, there was a big golf tournament where you decided to watch Because we all know I only like
2: golf in... and horse racing, so you know this was a golf weekend. Thank God they didn't overlap.
0: Let's talk about golf. All right, well, at the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach, golfer Gary Woodland won his uh, fourth PGA title, but first major. He had to hold off hard-charging Brooks Kepka to claim the victory. Did you guys expect Brooksy?
2: To- I said to Micah, the, our managing editor, we were talking over the weekend and i was like I, honestly if brooks Kepka wins i don't know what we're gonna say because <laughs> after he won the two majors ago we were like this guy only wins majors and then uh after the pga championship this year we we're like this guy only wins majors still and I, only wins what, what majors. are we gonna say he only wins majors what are we just gonna keep saying that he's only been beaten by two golfers gary woodland and tiger woods have those two golfers ever
0: been in the same <laughs> Wood, together? Wood, woods woodland <laughs> the only golfers to beat beat you tiger woods the best golfer of all maybe of all time and Gary Woodland who seems really nice Well, that was just one of the many trophies handed out over the past week. The Toronto Raptors, favorite of 538. We the model. (laughs) We the model. Claimed their first NBA championship on Thursday night. Um, It was exciting. I was excited. It was a fun game.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was a fun series, I think, aside from the crushing injuries that kept uh, befalling the Warriors. (laughs) every 2 seconds.
0: Yeah, that was obviously terrible. But the the Raptors the Raptors won as the 538 model.
1: Um, and Sarah.
0: And most importantly and and Sarah predicted. And now of course the moment after that the championship ended. We had more NBA
1: news. Maybe it was, I don't know how many hours, 36 hours or something yeah. until the, the news uh, of the Anthony Davis trade to yeah. the Lakers. So, yeah.
0: yeah. Um, the other championship decided over the past week was the St. Louis Blues. They won decisively over the Boston Bruins in Game 7 of the Stanley Cup final, winning their first Stanley Cup title ever.
1: No model to uh, congratulate on that no. one. We haven't no done model yet. 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 We've been talking about it.
0: But I do want to point out, you guys, when there were four teams left and we foolishly made our predictions for the Stanley Cup winner, I predicted the Blues. Oh,
1: you picked the Blues I and the
0: Raptors. picked the Blues and the Raptors. Wow. Now, if you'll recall, I picked the Blues because they had the most Canadians on their team at that point in time. That, Not because I knew anything about what would actually happen. But I happen. mean, that <laughs>
1: was as valid a predictor as anything, I think, right? Yeah, I, that think, I right? think
0: now is the, yeah, that's what we're actually going to base our NHL model on, number of Canadians.
1: And our NBA model, like proximity to Canada. Yeah, right. So,
0: Canada, very big in this. Huge, in, in my personal huge we- for yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and Sarah. This is Canada's year.
2: Canada's looking decent in the Women's World Cup. That's true. Yeah. Canada, man. Who knew? Who knew <laughs> about that country above
0: us? <laughs> All right, well, on today's show, we will take a deeper look at the hot takes that define this NBA final series. We'll dig into the Women's World Cup, how Team USA is faring so far, and the upcoming matches we're keeping our eyes on. And we'll get something off our chests with an addition of Get Off My Field. We'll start off with the NBA. In a conversation about the NBA Finals, 538 managing editor Micah Cohen said, I feel like this playoffs was designed to make NBA analysts look stupid every three days. Given that we're a show that takes down hot takes, we figured we'd do a retrospective on just how wandering the narrative of this postseason was and dig into the rationale behind the whiplash. Take a listen.
1: The Milwaukee Bucks are gonna win the world championship. Oh wow. Whether or not he plays or not, Kevin Durant, I I believe that the Warriors are gonna win in six. For what it's worth, my
2: initial inclination was to take the Warriors in a sweep.
1: So we're coming out of this finals. Most realistic narratives to you, I would say number one would be Warriors win the title. Steph Curry wins the finals MVP. Well I'm gonna take the Warriors in six. I'm gonna after all this talk about the model, I'm gonna sort of blatantly flout it. I'm gonna say Raptors. In 7 I'm
2: not going to doubt the nation <laughs> of Canada now. I'm going to go Raptors in, in seven. I'm taking Raptors in
1: five. Wow. The series is tied. How fragile is confidence when you're new to this and the champs respond as they did? I think their confidence is fractured.
0: They know that it's an uphill battle from here on out.
2: I'm here to tell you right now, even if the Warriors were down 3-1, I'd still be sitting here telling you they're coming back. They're, they're more fun to watch, I think, yeah. about Durant. But if he does
0: play, how effective do you think he'll be after missing over a month of action?
2: I don't think he would be effective at all. And recognize that you're the Golden State Warriors, you've got one last hope, and that hope
0: is Kevin Durant. You've been asking these guys all morning if there's somebody to blame. Yes. Yes, there is somebody to blame. The Golden State Warriors... But putting
2: KD out there. The Golden State Warriors are a dynasty. They made five straight NBA finals. That that
1: is one of the great runs we've ever seen. Are they done? Yes, and it's okay. Every dynasty comes to an end in some form or fashion. This right here is one of the single greatest runs by an individual that I've seen in a very long time. Kawhi Leonard is the best basketball player in the world. Of course Kawhi Leonard is the best player in basketball, and it's about time people recognize it.
0: Okay, so that was a lot.
1: A lot of takes to digest. A lot
0: of takes. A lot of great takes there.
1: One of which came from me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We all, finally, finally, we all have our takes (laughs) immortalized.
2: I I really just want to say, even though I predicted the Raptors, I I don't want any credit for that. Um, (laughs) I'm not bragging. (laughs) <laughs> I know there's a sizzle reel to be made out there of all my horrible predictions just from the, you know, last couple months we've been doing this. Maybe our producer Grace can do that for us. Um just to just to put in perspective. Yeah,
0: like a Christmas episode. End of year. How meaningless <laughs> yeah.
2: my words are.
0: So, we all know the sports world is full of takes. Uh we obviously wouldn't have a show if it weren't. But Neil, why was this year in the NBA so extreme?
1: Well, on the one hand, I think A lot of these takes that we just heard, you could probably go back, you know, pick out any season, especially recent seasons in the sort of hyper social media era of sports coverage, and you could probably find some similar things. There's been narrative whiplash in not just basketball, but maybe especially basketball, and there's been narrative whiplash uh, in just recent sports. We're trying to talk about things on the basis of, incredibly small samples like one game in a lot of ways and we have to find something different to say that isn't the same as what we said before the game uh and if there's anything that we've learned at 538 from doing these predictions and sort of looking at what actually does predict it's that taking the long view looking at a large sample and not allowing yourself to be overwhelmed by any one result is the best way to make predictions going forward. Yet it's also really bad radio and television <laughs> and you know media coverage. And so it's it's a weird kind of uh, struggle between the two of what's entertaining and what kind of overreaction can you get away with and what's just stupid. And maybe this year was a particularly extreme case because. You had this dynasty uh, that injuries kept happening, to, and the injuries were as much of a talking point as the actual on-court play of the team. Uh, And and it was the first year in a long time where it seemed viable that uh, the Warriors might not actually win at all. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, you had uh, a team in the Raptors that was a great story, and people were sort of excited about that. And so I think it was sort of this perfect storm of... Uh, different narratives that could kind of come together. But I I think if you picked a lot of different seasons, you would have a lot of narrative whiplash. Uh,
2: Neil's right. I mean, like, essentially the last couple of years of the NBA were remarkably predictable. It was like the Warriors will play LeBron's team. And it was inevitable. Um, And in this some ways, I think what you're seeing is just analysts really not knowing how to deal with the way it normally is you know you go back earlier this century when the mavericks are winning or the pistons are winning and there were some somewhat strange results um that's more in line with you know the way it normally is but maybe not with the super team movement maybe maybe this this year will be the anomaly
1: well i would be curious to see like You know, if we had the current media ecosystem during like the 97 Bulls or the 98 Bulls or something, you know, one of these other dynasty teams, uh, they were in a way really fortunate to have played before this current era of of everything being in this media fishbowl uh comparatively speaking but there would have been crazy takes uh about those bulls teams you know that if the jazz i think the jazz won game one of the 98 oh, yeah. finals or something in chicago people would have been freaking out about michael jordan being done and you know this team disintegrating i think you could have found these threads in a previous era it's just not it wasn't covered as to the level of extreme that it is right now
2: can you imagine these guys talking about the jordan retirement I mean,
1: right. I, I remember the, when the Jordan... The secret suspension?
2: Yeah, well, whatever it was. Um, I remember when it happened, we were like, and Jordan's retired. Well, that makes no sense. Okay, let's move on. He's in his prime. Go Rockets.
1: He's playing baseball. That's not weird.
0: <laughs> I would have loved to hear the takes about that. Maybe at some point we should go like do a show retro of... Retro takes? Retro takes, oh, yes. Oh, my
1: God, Sarah. That would be... And welcome to Hot Takedown for the week of June 18th, 1994. Some crazy stories happening here. The Rangers won the Cup. Oh, the Knicks goodness. are in the finals. O.J. Simpson, what's up with that?
2: <laughs> yeah, we'd have
1: to talk about O.J. Oh, my goodness.
2: Great show. All right, let's stop this show now and start planning that show.
0: Well, Jeff, you made the point that um, people didn't really know how to react to the Warriors maybe not winning. So many of the arguments during this postseason were framed around the Warriors and whether they would win and how things would you know what was were they falling apart or whatever was that just because they were the defending champions I mean the 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 focus was on the Warriors not the Raptors who actually won
2: yeah I mean I I think that's very in line with the way it is in most sports I mean you you look at the NFL the narrative usually and rightly revolves around Brady and Belichick and the Patriots who's going to beat them? Are they going to win again? I mean, that's what we talk about. And for good reason. You look back at like the 2014 Super Bowl, this reminded me of that, which is the Broncos Seahawks, which was the best offense against the best defense. And the point spread was two and a half. So the game's pretty much a toss up by by the odds, which means by the analytics. And everyone was just like, Broncos going to kill them. Because I think we're just inherently drawn to offense. I mean, it's just something fans do. You you just you think offense is going to win. You don't understand how offense can be stopped. And I think if you look at this series, it was a f- elite offense with a mediocre defense against a pretty good offense and an elite defense and you know, those kind of differences are just often ignored. We're we're, we're drawn to the points. So, I think it was hard to, for people to visualize that team and how much they can score and all the threes they can hit being stopped regardless of having durant
1: but i think we're also kind of flipped around and turned around backwards as analysts over just the past few years of the nba in general because like the warriors were not you know an incredibly dominant team during the regular season this year but you know what they weren't an incredibly dominant team during the regular season last year you know if we were going off of the things that i think traditionally even in basketball have been predictors of you know who's good and uh who's likely to win you would look at things like point differential during the season and you know try to kind of base things off of observed evidence and there's been this trend in the nba in the past few years of those things not mattering at all like the regular seasons and the warriors didn't do that at first you know they won 73 games as the defending champs uh, in 2016 but even they sort of started pacing themselves and not necessarily looking like some kind of overwhelming force and the Raptors uh, you know have had seasons where they had one of the best records in the NBA certainly one of the best in the East and looked like oh is this Raptors team a force to be reckoned with and then it would come out in the playoffs and get swept despite evidence to the contrary uh, based on the season that you would think that they would have been more competitive And so we've set up this situation in the NBA where now we don't know what to make of the playoffs. The playoffs are so divorced from the regular season and divorced from what we've been looking at and talking about for months that by the time we get to the playoffs, we have to fall back on these tropes of like, Well, defending champs usually win in the NBA because it's such a dynastic league uh, and the Warriors are just, you know, they're going to find an extra gear. I don't care that half of their team is, uh, you know, laying on stretchers uh, on the sidelines. Uh, You know, defending champs defend. That's what they do. And it's worked in the past when we've talked about uh, the Warriors. We went through a span like you were talking about, Jeff, where the regular season did seem like it kind of mattered. You know, you had those Pistons teams, and they actually looked good during the regular season. And the Spurs traditionally looked pretty good when they won the NBA championship during, uh, you know, during their regular seasons. Uh, And even the Heat, you know, when they had uh, the Big Three, those teams did well during the regular season, the Big Three Celtics as well. But now this Warriors era, I think, has us all turned around trying to figure out what's real, what's not. And that's Fertile ground for just hot takes, I think, because we don't know what to make of anything that we're seeing on the court.
0: And I think it it creates the space where people who don't really want to believe analytics, don't want to believe underlying stats and want to believe narratives it's an easier thing to do because, well, you know, the regular season doesn't mean anything, so I'm going to believe the thing I was going to believe anyway. I'm going to believe the Warriors are going to win because the Warriors win.
1: And you know what? That's not a totally nonsensical approach when there has been evidence that the, you know, the numbers from the regular season at least aren't very predictive in the playoffs. And I
2: think also it's a little bit of a double standard because the the, the perception is you're exactly right. The Warriors are going to find this extra gear. They haven't really been trying in the regular season same with LeBron you know he's going to find this extra gear he can't be counted down. but it was Kawhi who despite all his heroics and the buzzer beater that was the one who was really giving us some misdirection in the regular season I mean he looked statistically how much he elevated his game and I wonder if he plays like that for 82 games how much that shapes our opinion of the Raptors and what they're capable of. Even though he's won a Finals MVP and we've seen it before.
0: But also, they were very specific, the Ra- the Raptors were, about not playing him 82 games. Right. I mean, they rested him. They really managed his load. And, and does that matter? Does that help you find that extra gear in the playoffs? And I think... I mean, it
1: has to, right?
0: Right. Now, I would really like us to... I would like someone, us, to evaluate that and see if that works. Because it makes sense to us. But it's, again, it's also a narrative. And we would want to take a look at that and see if that really works. The thing I think was that was interesting about Golden State, we had the Raptors winning because Kevin Durant was injured. That was the overriding factor. And it still it stunned me that so many people, that predictors, that Vegas, that sports writers all had the Warriors winning even with losing this huge huge piece of their of their team, a, a superstar. And that I think that was where the narrative just I couldn't believe that the narrative was still so strong that Golden State would obviously win because because they win, even without Kevin Durant.
1: Well, I mean, we also talked about how first-time champs don't happen all that often in the NBA. So I think it was a little bit also skepticism over the Raptors based on the history of the NBA. We can look at a case where there is a defending champ, even if they're weakened by injuries, going up against a team that's going for its first championship, even if they have looked great, you know, and have outplayed our expectations. uh, This was a great test case of the, the, The preconceived notion that teams that have championship experience winning in the NBA just overrides everything else. And it being the stark contrast between one team having the championship experience and one other team having this history of failures in the playoffs, overriding everything else. And sort of, you know, you could build a case that that would have worked in previous seasons and that this has been kind of a weird aberration driven by all of these injuries to the Warriors. Um, and I think that goes back to why this was such a confusing, strange yeah. playoff.
0: I do hate the like the the idea that oh, this team always loses in the playoffs. Well, this team hasn't existed different for team. this season. Yeah. yeah, so it's like, well, they didn't have Kawhi before. They're completely didn't have salt. They didn't. They're a completely different team with its own thing. So don't put the history of the franchise. Like I don't think they, the players play with that weight. The players are just playing, right? So I think that's a fan thing that is sort of
2: silly. I think also it was a reaction to what happened in the Western Conference Finals, too. Where we even talked about how the Western Conference Finals was a little misleading. Durant goes down, and they're fine. They sweep the trailblazers. Even though... if if you actually get down to the numbers, it was a pretty close series. It just wasn't close in terms of results. Like, let's say in a hypothetical world, they go out and they barely get by Portland. And I don't think you're going to have the same the same narrative leading into the finals.
0: Yeah,
1: I'm I definitely producer. agree with that, Jeff.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, analyst Jalen Rose recently spoke to The New Yorker expressing frustration with the use of analytics in basketball. Now, a lot of his concerns have to do with the cultural and racial dynamics at play, including the barriers to entry into the field. But he also calls out analytics like player efficiency rating – separately from pure statistics like rebounds, points, assists, those things you can quantify in a game that you can actually count. He called those analytics out as being problematic. What would our, be our defense of analytics in this instance, Neil?
1: The critique of the cultural and racial dynamics of, you know, who gets to make decisions in the NBA, especially now that there's been this influx of, you know, non people that don't have playing backgrounds, uh, but they're wonks. Into front offices is a totally uh valid and concerning trend you know in the NBA and in a lot of different sports, not just the nba uh, of who gets to make the decisions about where the sport goes but i don 't know that necessarily you know kind of th- this there 's a separate argument about you know, this idea, and we've heard this a lot in baseball, for instance, people who would kind of criticize sabermetrics being like, I can see a hit, I can see an RBI, you know, and and pitchers win games, you mm-hmm. know, the, you can see that in the team's bottom line. I don't understand what this wins above replacement is about. It's too convoluted. You know, I think that that is kind of a classic critique of sabermetrics. But In a weird way, the way that the sports have kind of played out ever since people stopped being focused on the, you know, kind of whole number stats as almost those are only good for backing up arguments that you sort of already have decided uh, and and you're kind of looking for numbers to support them, Uh, whereas analytics – totally different from that and I would not classify player efficiency rating under analytics that's sort of a very outdated stat that no team is seriously using to uh, to make decisions with and in a lot of ways they're not even using the box score at all to make decisions nowadays you know with the advent of tracking data with the advent of you know increased embracing of plus minus data like the kind that told uh, us uh, with our model that the Raptors were a threat to mm-hmm. the Warriors, uh, which I didn't believe, uh, <laughs> as you heard in that compilation of takes. Important to, to Important that. to yeah. note the source. You know, there's a fundamental difference between numbers that tell you things and numbers that don't. And as we've seen more teams using those uh, analytics, the proof is in the teams that have won championships are the ones that are sort of at the cutting edge of using data. So I do also think that, you know, you still have people in the media that, tend to focus on those sort of numbers that you can see uh, and it goes to what we're talking about of overreacting to game results that you can see you know anytime that we can sort of wrap our mind around something that we witnessed with our own eyes I feel like that almost has like more weight in our feeling about what it represents than something abstract where it's like oh you know the 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 raptors are x number of points per 100 possessions better with kyle lowry on the floor and that might cause problems for the warriors uh you know that's a little bit difficult to conceptualize because we can't like You know, keep track completely of all the minutes that Lowry was in the game and that he was not in the game and, you know, who he was playing with the whole time. And these algorithms actually can keep track of all those things and kind of come up with, well, what's our best guess at given this complex set of lineups and performances, you know, of each player's value. So I don't know. In a weird way, I think that the takes that we've seen sort of. Go back to an over reliance on the eye test, or what old hot takedown listeners would call the gaze—the <laughs> general assessment, zero evidence. Uh, the, in this one, it's like minimal evidence, but it's sort of evidence that you feel like you can give more weight to because you saw it, and then like you have a number in a column that backs up this event that you saw. But event based things aren't necessarily always the the best to uh, predict going forward.
0: I mean, points are always going to be important in well they do
1: determine who wins they,
0: the game. <laughs> they they are their thing. They're not going away. And I and I think something Jalen Rose said in that interview um, was I think a really good point that analytics are a tool in the toolbox. And I think that's that's really true. And I think as people who care deeply about evaluating games and thinking about better ways to evaluate games it's obviously important to remember that points are a thing and they're not going to stop. And we're, we are going to keep looking at how many points people score. Now, those other things are also important as a player. You just, you just want your players to go out and play and they're not going to think about whether their team is better with them on the floor or not. They have to believe their team is better with them on the floor and they're going to go out and, and, and play. And I think that's fine. It's a, Analytics are one are one piece of it, and we think it's an important piece, but it's obviously not the only piece. What he said about barriers to entry into the analytics field is hugely important, and it's something that our entire industry needs to think about. Because it shouldn't just be people who think they're smarter than everyone who's actually playing the game making the decisions that's going to just lead to all kinds of problems. And it already has. But I loved what he said about it being a tool in the toolbox.
1: And in a weird way, I mean, we've seen players that sort of have this heightened understanding of what rewards analytics based analysis is going to give them like a James Harden and those are players that are sort of reviled by, by, you know, a large swath of the fan community. And maybe also from, you know, uh, ex players who are analysts because it's, uh, it's embracing this style. We talked to Kirk Goldsberry a few episodes ago about just how much the game of basketball has changed. And maybe for the worse, aesthetically, because of responding to rewards that, analysts have sort of set in front of players so it is interesting that like if you're in the old school mindset of i'm going to get my buckets uh and points are things that i can kind of count for myself while i'm on the court then you're going to play a very different style than if you're thinking about okay how can i maximize team efficiency on this possession well i'm going to try to draw a foul right and if i can't do that i'm going to shoot a three
0: or I'm gonna I'm PJ Tucker and I'm gonna stand at a corner and wait and, for and the ball for to be sent to me. Yeah. yeah, I'm gonna think about spacing. I'm not just going to. Well, I'm also gonna recognize I'm playing with one of the best players in the league, and I'm gonna do what I need to do to to get my team the win.
1: And in a weird way, I mean that helps the team. And mm-hmm. so, in, uh, if we're if we're talking about being all about winning, which you know a lot of players talk about, then you know is that really? is that an that's an evolution of a mindset uh, as opposed to being about your own numbers mm-hmm. but i don't know if it's good for the player in the sense that you know when it comes to contracts when it comes to um you know trying to kind of elevate their own star power in a league that star power matters probably more now than ever before you know being able to point to well i was number 1 in the league in real plus minus it maybe is not actually a very compelling thing to play to as a reward, you know, for an in, any individual player, even if it does help the team. It's complicated.
0: Um, a lot of the coverage of the finals revolved around three players, Kevin Durant, Clay Thompson, and Kawhi Leonard. Part of that is because of their huge impact on the game and, of course, the injuries to KD and Clay. But another factor that put them in the headlines was their impending free agency. Jeff, we talk about this being the era of player empowerment. How much is that shaping the media coverage of the game itself?
2: A lot. And I think rightly, if you're not a Warriors fan or a Raptors fan, you're thinking about next season. I mean, if you're an NBA fan, you're watching, you're enjoying, you don't really care, but you're thinking about next season. Maybe you you root for one of these other teams that's involved. So I think it kind of looms over everything. And the fact of the matter is, it has proven to work, you know, forming these teams in the offseason. You know, I guess it started with Garnett, Pearson Allen with Boston. They won. Then you look at LeBron's decision and all the attention that got that summer. That Heat team won a couple titles. And then, you know, when there was Love and Irvin and LeBron, it took a little while, but that team won too. So, like, this is where titles are decided. So, I don't really blame anyone for, for keeping an eye on that or talking about that. Like it or like it or not, the nature of basketball and the nature of how much power these players have, a lot of, of next season is decided in the next two weeks.
0: I guess my question was, how did that overshadow the finals themselves? I mean, I don't really, maybe I'm just remembering this wrong, but the summer of the decision, of course, we didn't know it was going to be called that yet. <laughs> I don't remember, I don't remember that looming over the finals, that Well, that's because
1: LeBron wasn't in the finals. Famously, he laid an egg in that series against the Celtics two rounds before the finals. So by that point, I think we were like, um, uh, you know, there was a great uh, Celtics-Lakers final. And then we were like, oh, yeah, LeBron is up for free agency, isn't he? Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, I
0: almost would have expected it to be bigger because he wasn't. Involved.
2: Well, I think when he's, if he was involved, you would have gotten a lot of the same nerves. Will he, will, if he would right. you know, if they if win, wins, will he, he stay? stay? Or will he go? Will he got Cleveland a title and maybe he'll go to New York? People were seriously talking about him going to New York. Oh, I um, remember, Jeff.
0: <laughs> we're always talking about the next star going to New York and, and then not, not going, going to, to New York. York.
2: <laughs> so what was unusual about this season was that these guys were involved. What was double unusual is that these guys were involved and they got hurt. Yeah. So, it, it was something in this you know sort of current era of super teams that i don't think we'd experience before
0: i kept forgetting that clay was going to be a free agent which i found interesting too because you can't forget that durant was going to be a free agent with there wasn't as much furor about where thompson would go i think a lot of people assumed that he would stay in golden state so i wonder how that plays a part too why does durant loom so much larger
1: well, he's a better player for I mean, one thing. I mean, sure.
0: Although Clay is also, inte- Clay is maybe more uh, attached to that team and is, you know, has been a part of it longer. Well, I think that's also he is part of it. a brother. I mean, he
1: is a splash bro. <laughs> no, but I think that's, uh, that, that you you mentioned that the assumption was and still is that he would go back to Golden State. It's a combination of those two things. To the overall question about why it loomed so large, it's crazy how many of the top projected next free agents were involved in one NBA finals. And so I I think that we have not seen a situation where just like the the concentration of the next summer, especially the top two clear-cut, you know, guys of the following offseason were facing against each other. That's part of why it overshadows. And then it's also that Nowadays in the NBA, we can't wait for one season to be over before we start speculating about the next season and thinking about what that means. I mean, they released odds. I wouldn't be surprised if they released odds like before the end of the, you know, before (laughs) the Raptors won about like, yeah, this is okay for you Raptors, but you're actually, you only have the fifth best odds for the next season. It's like, can we let the championship confetti like be swept away from the court uh you know by the time that happens the point is is that i think now jeff you mentioned that the off season basically determines not just the next season but also multiple Subsequent seasons of NBA history, that we put all of our focus on the off season, and then like the finals are like a thing that happens a week, a couple weeks before free agency starts, <laughs> when we can really determine who wins, unless something wacky happens, like you know the the two of the Warriors' four best players get grievously injured and allow a, a Toronto team nobody saw coming to win the championship.
0: So, are there ways that sports media? should improve its coverage of both the sport and the surrounding drama of the sport?
1: I mean, does it need to be? Like, the NBA has never been more popular than it is right now. And I think that the the way the media covers it, it plays a role in that. I mean, I think the accessibility of the players and their sort of openness in social media and things like that also play a big role. I mean, we've joked about this. The NBA has become basically a, a glorified soap opera no. For sure, yeah. and I the way the media covers it really feeds into that. All of the hot takes we heard at the top of the show feed into that. I think it's good for the league wait, to wait, be wait. covered that way. Is
0: is the position of hot takedown that takes are good and, our, and integral? I don't to know the sport? what does
1: good mean. <laughs> We're I mean, ending <laughs> the show right now, right? <laughs> We've been canceled clearly.
2: No, We're but canceling I mean, ourselves
1: what. What yeah. is good? You know, uh, th- I think that that sort of all our talk about the narrative whiplash, that's a great term, at the top of the segment feeds into this too, this idea of, is the purpose of covering a sport to ha- take the long, sober view of who will win, and if that's boring, so be it, or is it to you know, feed into the entertainment value of the sport. I think that's a question that maybe the NBA is facing more than any other sport. I could see the argument on both sides, but I could see why the league might have a vested interest in things being the opposite. I think you're right. And in some
2: ways, I think this is bigger than sports. You see this in politics, too. I mean, like, oh, absolutely. TV analysts are not promoted for being pragmatic and prudent and giving balanced opinions. I mean, everything is being pushed to ex- the extremes. And and likewise, people writing on the internet are chasing clicks and, you know, g- giving really hedged, realistic predictions are, are not going to get clicks. Like it or not, I, I think we both agree we don't like the, this trend. But I mean, that's just the way it, the current landscape of all media is, I think.
0: So we shouldn't fight it. We should just roll with
1: it. If you can't beat them, join them.
0: <laughs> Hot takedown. Now with more takes.
1: Well, it's kind of an evolutionary process too, right? Like the, the places that don't participate in that don't make enough money to exist, go, you know, long term. Like it's this weird kind of survival of the takiest uh, in a lot of <laughs> oh ways. Oh my God. Like, I don't know. I mean, it's it's weird. Like I know that there is an appetite for measured analysis. I'd like to think that you know, we are part of that. Uh, but I also know that there's a definite appetite for non-measured analysis. And I think that a lot of the, you know, the way that the NBA is covered thrives off of that. And and maybe that's not necessarily a bad thing, depending on which perspective you take on it.
0: All right. Well, let's let's leave that there.
1: Our wonderful sponsor, LinkedIn, uh, has a very special uh code. That happens to be my name, and so they've agreed. They've agreed that it would be best to uh, for me to read it. So we are going to pause for uh, for a word from LinkedIn. And I just want to say that when you're juggling hiring alongside everything else it takes to grow your business, it's important that you reach the right candidates at the right time, and that's where LinkedIn comes in. More than 610 million members visit LinkedIn every day. LinkedIn's members are seeking to create connections, grow as professionals, and discover new job opportunities, and that's how your job post gets in front of people with the right hard skills and soft skills to meet your role requirements. So to get $50 off your first job post, please go to LinkedIn.com slash Payne. That's my name, P A I N E. Again, that's LinkedIn.com slash Payne with an E to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions do apply.
0: Wait, what's that code one more time?
1: It would be LinkedIn.com slash Payne, P-A-I-N-E. Do it, Sarah. You can find the best and most qualified job candidates with just a single click.
2: LinkedIn.com slash foster gets you nothing. <laughs>
0: The Women's World Cup is in full swing. The U.S. women's team had two very exciting opening games: a thirteen-to-nothing triumph over Thailand and a more subdued three-nothing win over Chile.
1: Yeah, I was going to say it's exciting if you're an American.
0: I I personally was excited. I guess I should say, in an unconventional move, U.S. coach Jill Ellis benched many of her starters for the game against Chile, which means every member of the U.S. women's team has had minutes on the field this World Cup except for our two backup goalkeepers. They're the only ones. In an interview on Fox Sports, striker Alex Morgan was asked what she thought about the French national team. Clearly, they're the favorites. I mean, the host country is behind them. This is uh, the biggest World Cup that we've seen, um, the most magnified. So uh, obviously having to be here in France and them just continuing to peak is, is obviously great for them. Our model had France favored at the start of the tournament, but now the U.S. is the slight favorite. Jeff what made our model change its mind?
2: It comes down, I think mainly to 13 nothing, which is a huge goal differential last time I checked in soccer or really in any sport. And as someone who's been on I played in a high school soccer team that was real bad, evidence of that was probably the fact that I was playing. Um, but I've been on the losing side of 13 nothing painful. The model's factoring in goals for, goals against, and, you know, that's a huge number, and that's enough to tip the scales. Um, Even though you could argue that the teams they're playing are not very good and they haven't really been tested and that starting with Sweden, we'll really see how good this team is. Um, looking at the pure numbers, I, I feel like I'm I'm walking into a, like a Jalen Rose type argument here. <laughs> it was close to begin with, but that was enough to tip the scales.
1: And weirdly, uh, Chile and Thailand aren't even the lowest rated uh, teams in the World Cup field, no, according to right? our model. Yeah, Argentina, who already has one point In the tournament so far, uh, Chile and Thailand uh, didn't come close to achieving a point against the US.
0: No, not really. (laughs) So, Neil, what is the model really measuring when it's making these projections?
1: Well, it uses this soccer power index, which is just this like estimate of how strong each team is. And it's not just based on the World Cup or previous World Cups, even. It looks at like all the matches that uh, a national team plays. And it even has like special weights that it gives to games in which they're playing. you know, they have an incentive to win more, and so they play their um, starters uh, more, uh, and, and so – you know, it looks at this like very large long-term sample of games, and it even has not just, you know, goal differential, but it also accounts for things like red cards. You know, if a team was down uh, a player, you know, it it sort of discounts the goals a little bit if you get them. Uh, It it looks at the leverage of the match when the goals were scored. It looks at expected goals, your favorite, Sarah, (laughs) um, and, and sort of, you know, tries to figure out, okay how well did the team play it even looks at expected goals on non shooting actions so like control of the play uh you know through passing or possession uh that should lead to shots which should lead to goals even if they don't lead to shots or goals still sort of trying to kind of infer from that well you know how well did you play the model because it has so much you know, such density of information that's going into it, it can kind of fine-tune things even after seeing a 13 nothing win over a clearly overmatched Thailand squad. You know, it learns something about uh, the U.S. in that, and I think that is what improved their rating. You would think, oh, adjusting because of a 13 nothing win over a terrible team is actually sort of a hot takey way to <laughs> uh, uh, change your predictions uh, on the basis of one game, but I think It does try to kind of balance the information that it gets in that game with what it knew about each team going into the game and what it has seen sort of over the course of many, many matches over time.
2: And if you look at the numbers, they're just so lopsided right now and, you know, 5.64 expected goals per 90 minutes, which is way above any other team. In the tournament and nearly 15 shots on goal per 90 minutes. I mean, like these are huge numbers. So I think in some ways that Neil also answered the question of, of why the model is, is like in the US.
0: So let's talk about France. The French men's national team, as you all remember, won the World Cup last year. If the French women were to pull it off this year, France would become the first country in history to hold the title on both the men and the women's sides. Strangely, even though the American women have won so many World Cups, I'm shocked. I thought the American men had a title, too.
1: You would think. I mean, they (laughs) they certainly get paid as though they win as much. It's interesting how that works. That
0: was kind of a hot take, Neil. Neil, what do the odds look like for France going forward? And how much of an advantage is it to be the home team in the World Cup?
1: Well, I think it's a huge advantage. So... uh, First of all, like you mentioned, France was the favorite going into the tournament. So in some ways, their their odds, they're at 20% right now to win the World Cup. And the U.S. was at 18 before the tournament. And so if you flash forward to today, France is... Again, at 20%. And the U.S. is at 22%. So it's like they haven't changed in in their uh, odds, even though they've gotten nine points so far. That's the most you could possibly get in Mm -hmm. the group stage. Obviously, they clinched. And yet, you know, because of the the way the U.S. has kind of casually brushed aside these other teams, France sort of is staying in the same spot. But 20% in one of these major international uh, soccer tournaments at the group stage is still like, really good Mm -hmm. I mean we've had years where the favorite didn't even hit 20 percent you know going into the tournament we just don't know all that much about you know the comparative strengths of the top teams until they really start getting maybe until they get into the knockouts and start playing each other and what's really kind of unfortunate I think is the way the knockouts are set up right now is that if France wins it's Well, France has won its group. It's clinched it. If the U.S. does what we give an 83% chance to and sort of wins its group as expected, those two teams would be on a collision course in a couple rounds of the knockouts. And so we could get this like de facto World Cup championship match like way before. The actual championship of the World Cup, uh, and I don't know how that ends up happening. Is it just a quirk of the draw and the way things come out? I mean, some of it has to do with, like, the incredibly convoluted way that the World Cup is set up uh, in terms of, well, you have, you know, first place team obviously makes it into the knockouts. Second place team obviously makes it into the knockouts but also sometimes third place teams can make it in the knockouts and there's this crazy you know mapping procedure of like who gets to play who depending on whether the third place team comes from which group incidentally that's why we our model doesn't actually have a bracket
0: yeah exactly we didn't do a bracket on our prediction page because there are so many rules about how these third place teams move on that there's no way to predict it there are eight tiebreakers for the third place teams so the four of the six third place teams will move on. So it's almost easier to predict who won't than who will because, you know, there are a couple of of just worse teams. But you make an interesting point about, you know, this really great game that's looming in the quarters. If the U.S. were to lose to Sweden and be the second place team in Group F, they would likely face Germany in the quarters. Now, the three, the only three teams in the World Cup that have odds better than 10% to win the whole thing are the U.S., France, and Germany? So these they're going to face. Yeah, one of it's kind these of a tough teams, choice. I no mean,
1: otherwise what. you would start to see people, and I guess I've seen some people on Twitter uh, making the case that maybe the U.S. should tank. Because they've already, you right. know, secured a berth no. in the in the <laughs> knockouts that maybe they should shoot for that second place and then they would face Germany. But Germany, although our model rates France as being a little bit better than them, it's not like a huge amount, you know, it's not like you're gaining that much by tanking your way into... <laughs> The the knockouts. The
0: U.S. sort of is facing a Golden State situation where they have a a relatively easy round of sixteen, a tough match in the second.
1: France is like the Houston Rockets. France is the
0: Houston Rockets of of this. Their three point shot is amazing, so that makes sense. Um, And then might have a slightly easier time in the semis, and then a tough final if they were to win all those games. So I mean, I think the you know you get you go from this. Wildly unequal competition in the group stages to it all being much closer very quickly, which is kind of a shock, I think, to a casual fan. But the games are about to pick up quite a
1: bit. Well, are there too many teams qualifying for the World Cup? That was a thought that I had after the 13 to nothing romp over Thailand. Is this, I mean, it's not nothing against Thailand's team. They did the best they could, but I think it seemed pretty clear that they you know it was unfair to sort of even ask them to try to take on the US and the US you know got came under a lot of fire for celebrating too much and all that crap in my opinion that was a um a very frustrating argument that people made against it because you play the team that is in front of you. They didn't hold up. It would have been more insulting if they had held up in some ways. Uh, and what are you supposed to do? Not celebrate you know, World Cup goals that are imbe- going to be embedded in your memory for the rest of your yeah. life you'll tell your grandchildren and great-grandchildren about? B- but I think it just speaks to, like, why was Thailand, you know, why are some of these lower teams actually in the World Cup? Are there not, you know, enough teams that are worthy of the world cup to even kind of go around in the world anymore
0: i think it's i think that's an interesting question i think when you're trying to grow the sport you take this sometimes i mean and there were wa- there weren't other similar goal disparities that was a i mean in, in fact in the Thailand second game they, lo- they lost five to one which is still a big a big you know score in soccer but they scored a goal which was I think, pretty huge for their team.
2: Yeah, their coach started crying right after they I scored. I know,
0: yeah. I mean, so I think this is the situation where the sport is in. It is still growing and making, finding a home in these countries that don't don't support women's soccer as much as they do men's soccer. So I think, you know, the, the World Cup expanded the last time. So this is the, just the second World Cup with this many teams. I think you're going to just see less and less of that kind of a disparity as you go. So I, I think ultimately it's better to have those teams. You know, this always happens. In the Olympics, there'll be some team that you're like, really? like
1: Or, <laughs> or yeah, like that diver or that that swimmer that, you know, like swam in his own heat and <laughs> yeah. was like... Katie you know,
0: Ledecky has lapped the swimmer like four times. Trillions yeah, of yeah. times. Yeah. And so that'll happen. But I think you celebrate the sport and you want more more people involved in it so I'm okay with that i think this kind of thing happened it was embarrassing for them but I think they recovered really nicely and they were they were very gracious about it and they were also happy to be there and happy to be on the big stage so I, I think that's good
2: i imagine actually FIFA probably wants to bring this the opposite direction to thirty two teams which solves this you know three three group uh third place in the group problem but also, I think you're going to have even more bad teams. I mean, you look at what they're doing on the men's side. They're they are trying to push it to even more teams because, uh, you know, the, the whole idea is get as many countries interested as possible. All
0: right, well, let's talk about the American women. The next big challenge is Sweden. They'll face Sweden on Thursday at 3 p.m. The U.S. has had a kind of tumultuous history with the Swedish team, right, Jeff?
2: Yeah, I mean, you could argue that the loss in the 2016 Olympics I mean, it was it was the earliest exit in a major tournament, and it was probably – I mean, I think the loss of Japan obviously would be the worst loss. But in some regards, that was the sort of most shocking loss by the American side. Um, so, I mean – I heard Megan Rapinoe talk and say, yeah, that was a long time ago. You know, it was a different team. And she's right. Half these women weren't even on the field. At the same time, I think it affected, and you read what Jill Ellis has said, that loss had a big effect on her because, you know, it was a 1-1. It went to penalties and they lost. I mean, obviously penalties can go either way, but they really did have trouble sort of breaking down the Swedish defense. And it... If you listen to her, she came out of it changing her approach or she said she was going to change her approach and and thinking about how they're going to have to sort of systematically break down these tough defenses and sort of alluded to this idea that we've written about, which is that, you know, you can't really take some of these teams so lightly as you did in the past. And I think it did sort of affect the mindset in that regard. Whether people are out there going, we got to beat Sweden, we hate them. I, I don't think they play enough to have that kind of rivalry. Although they have They played. play a lot.
0: Yeah, they've been in the same group. This is the fifth time they've been in the same group, which is amazing, in a World Cup. Fifth time in a row. Yeah, but
2: spread out over how many years? I mean, and how many players were there for large chunks of that? I mean, I'm, I'm just saying they don't play any team as much. It's not like you know, these team sports in in these pro leagues where they're, they're seeing each other every year in series and over and over. I mean, just the nature of international soccer, you're not sure. going to play that much.
0: Well, so what should we be looking out for during Thursday's match?
1: Well, right now, our model gives the U.S. a 61% chance of winning and a 22% chance at the draw. So that means Sweden has a 17% win probability. But yeah, I'm interested in basically whether... Alyssa Nair will get work uh, as, as a goaltender. She really hasn't had to face many shots at all in the first two games. Uh, and really, like, the U.S. defense in general hasn't been tested mm-hmm. uh, almost at all. I mean, they this is what happens when you possess the ball basically the whole game. Uh, and so I think we haven't necessarily seen um, – you know, a team really try to apply pressure to the US and and see how their defense and goaltending react to that. And goaltending was one of the storylines going into the tournament. You know, Hope Solo had been such a fixture for the US for many years. And Alyssa Nair is, you know, not known as being quite as good at the art of stopping shots as Hope Solo was. Um, she, uh, In terms of her save percentage, it, it's lower, but she's more of a factor in terms of, you know, moving the ball forward getting it you know turning chances turning it into chances the other way and kind of generating passes uh from the back line so i think that that's what i'm kind of looking for is just what what do we see when this us team actually ha- is under any kind of pressure or duress which they haven't been so far
0: i'm interested to see how the goal scorers for the americans fare against a stronger defensive line as well i mean Chile and Thailand didn't present a ton in terms of defense. Tremendous um,
1: goaltending, yes. though. For Chile, <laughs> I
0: know Christian Endler was amazing. I said this in the in our uh, World Cup chat yesterday, but I feel like Christian Press is going to be thinking about <laughs> Christian Endler and how she she stopped three of her really great. Those were such great shots. They too. were they were beautiful, and the saves were just amazing. And that was that part was very fun to watch to me. So it'll be. Um, They won't face a goalie as good. They will probably face a better overall defense. So it'll be interesting to me to see how how that plays out for the Americans. All right, well, let's leave that segment right there and pause to hear from this week's other sponsor, ExxonMobil. Plants capture CO2. What if we could help industrial plants capture it too? Think how we could help lower emissions. More and more scientists think carbon capture is key to reducing CO2 emissions globally. It's one way ExxonMobil is helping industrial plants be more like plants. That's the unexpected energy of ExxonMobil. Every once in a while, we want to slip in a take of our own, although I feel like today was a very um, us-take-heavy episode, but that's okay. We're going to lean into it. We're going to really enjoy it. We like to do this in the style of a get-off-our-lawn kind of rant. It's time to explain why something in sports is wrong in a segment we call Get Off My Field. I will start us off today. Go for it. Game seven of the Stanley Cup final was a blast to watch, and not just because I had correctly predicted the Blues' victory, as we already talked about, but I'm going to bring it up again. But I particularly enjoyed it because I saw the first two St. Louis goals actually go into the net. That is a unique situation for me. (laughs) (laughs) It's a constant problem. I have no idea what's happening in any hockey game because I cannot, for the life of me, see the dang puck. I know vaguely where it is, I see flashes of it from time to time, but it's super hard for me to follow, and that makes it really hard for me to get into the game.
1: Yeah, Sarah, it's a little like, you know, when somebody hits a fly ball out to the outfield, you watch where the outfielder is because you can't see where the ball is, but mm-hmm. you can see the person whose job it is to know where the ball is. And then that's where, how you know where the ball is going to be.
0: To your point, I have been watching baseball since I was a little kid. And so I and I and I've played I played softball very poorly, but I knew where I was supposed to be roughly. Um, and so I know that about the sport. I think if someone comes to baseball, they don't know what happened. And you see that all the time in it's really hard for people to judge fly balls, so the crowd reacts as if this ball is going to be a home run, and it ends up, you know, ten feet in front of the warning track, and you're like, no. Um, so, hockey for me is a sport I've been trying to get into for like twenty years, and because I can't see the puck and I don't know what the action is su- is supposed to be happening on the ice, it's really hard for me to get into, which then makes it hard for me to watch the next game and ever learn what's happening so it's this constant vicious cycle of not wanting to watch hockey when I do actually want to watch it so there was a brief beautiful period of the NHL from 1996 to 1998 that in retrospect I should have valued more had I known it was going to end so abruptly I would have taken advantage of it I'm talking of course about the era of the glowing puck I loved the glowing puck. I could always follow the puck. I knew what was happening. Fox Tracks, the system from Fox Sports that made the puck glow on our television screens, was a great invention. It was perfect for people like me who were new to the sport and just wanted to see a stinking goal. But the real hockey fans all hated the unnatural glow. So A.K.A.
1: It, all the Canadians. Yeah, all
0: the Canadians is who I'm talking about. So it died an untimely death. But here is my thing. So it's been 20 years we now have unnatural things on our screens for literally all of our sports. No one is bothered by the first down line, which, by the football. way, was
1: invented by the same company. Yes, that exactly. Made the Fox Tracks and, puck. And
0: it's like the glowing puck eased people into that. No one cares about that. No one's mad about it. People need it. You like want to know.
1: Yeah, when you it watch seems, on like ESPN Classic yeah, and they yeah. have a game that before the uh, first down line, you're like, where? Wait, yeah, are they I don't going know. What's it, like, yeah,
0: <laughs> I think it's funny when I go to a football game. Now and I'm like, oh, yeah, crap. <laughs>
1: Where's the, like, like, what do I'm, I like, do looking, now? I'm searching
0: the sidelines for the you know things. Chains. Yeah, it's it's hard, but nobody cares about that now. No one is upset by that golf broadcasts. I was watching the US Open over the weekend and that's so wonderful to have the trajectory of the ball shown on the screen instead of just like having like a picture of the sky and you're like, is there a golf ball there? So I it's assume It's going to land eventually, so, I right. guess. And you don't have any idea. You know, I love now being able to watch that trajectory and have an opinion about is it going to get close to the flag? Where are they trying to? And the, it enhances the experience of the game doesn't detract from it. Also, when I'm watching a baseball game and there isn't a strike zone on, because some broadcasts still don't have that, and that I just get mad because I want to know where the balls are. I want to know if a ball's a strike or not. So it turns out there's hope for me. Again, the NHL has been working on a player and puck tracking system and is planning for that technology to be ready in all 31 arenas this season sounds like there are lots of different ways they're still figuring out how they're going to use that tracking data and display it. But one of those options needs to be a display with a puck that I can actually see. I demand this for my sports viewing entertainment.
2: This may shock you. I'm open to it, Sarah. <laughs> that Fox track was a little ahead of its time. I mean, it was late 90s graphics. And honestly, it was That's just a all little the best ideas crummy. It if looks they,
1: real cheesy. If you I do mean, look it, at it. it now, like, now. like now. The first
2: down line is, and the way, especially the way that the ball tracker is in golf, it would look really nice. And I think people wouldn't. I mean, people were responding to the sort of budget nature of that actual graphic technology in the '90s. But again, I think it would. It would work a lot better now with the current technology.
1: And I think that was a time in hockey where it was not, it was still kind of a niche sport and, uh, it had expanded a lot into a lot of weird places, uh, in, in a very short amount of time at that moment. So you, uh, you know, you had a lot of traditional hockey fans up in Canada and, and, and the Northern US that, five six years earlier we're not looking at the reality of a te- you know teams in tampa and san jose and phoenix and then all of a sudden it's like you got all these weird warm weather teams and they're asking me on the official national broadcast to see a puck that has a vapor trail when it goes <laughs> over 70 miles per hour that's a bridge too far and i, mean, I-, I could kind of understand that
2: they didn't need the vapor trail they, they overthought it. They overplayed their hand. But I think you're right. It was a weird moment in hockey. You had teams not only expanding to like the Sun Belt, but you had teams moving from these places in Canada where the game's beloved and they're trying to, yeah, moving to, yeah, um, Winnipeg, moving to Phoenix. And there was some resentment, I think, uh, from our friends north of the border.
0: I, I understand that point. But I also think if you're a sport that's not the NBA, or the NFL. Every other sport should care about people learning your game. You baseball think this is a problem in baseball too. You want new fans and you need to be willing to extend that olive branch in the form of something that glows to those new fans. You want your sport to be popular. Let let other people learn it. Help other people learn it. The glowing puck it's the way to go. All right. I think that will do it for this week's show. We've, uh, we've, we're we've all taked out. So I think, I think that's good. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. This is still a new podcast. So if you like what you heard, please subscribe. And be sure to review and rate the show. It does help other people discover us. You can also email us all of your opinions about The Glowing Puck at podcasts at 538.com. So let us know what you think of the program. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah.
2: Thanks for listening and talk to you next time.